1: Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent,
0: Happy Thursday. I am so glad to be back with all of you. We have been off for a few weeks. Uh, I hope you have all had a fantastic holiday, a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. I hope it's all been so tremendous and all so memorable. Uh, 2018 was uh, quite the year, uh, but 2019 is off to a
2: very good
0: start and uh you know i'm very happy in the first couple days of 2019 i uh have a lot to look forward to and i'm sure many other people do as well and uh you know it's just it feels really good to be back you know first and foremost uh as usual i want to thank my audience i want to thank my sponsors i want to thank all my uh, amazing guests that have been on the show and uh when we were on a few weeks ago, uh, we had some great guests on, and, uh, you know, I just got great compliments from fans and people listening to the show that are very happy with, you know, uh, our our storyline and our plot and, you know, and, and our guests. I mean, we have so many fascinating people that come on this show. It is – it's cool. It's really cool, and it's a, it's a real a great gift and privilege, and I really am thankful for that. Um but tonight we have a huge show uh, We have award winner, international best-selling author Public speaker, American educator Frequent guest on Oprah, Today Show, and Good Morning America and an activist for male and female rights and entrepreneur Dr. Warren Farrell will be calling in uh, He wrote a very famous book called um, Dan, uh, my co-host I want to introduce my co-host Dan Perkins real quick Because he'll remind me of the name of the book oil and natural gas investor, foreign policy analysis, businessman, motivational speaker, radical Islam expert, and a contributor to Daily Caller, Clash Daily, Lives At Daily Surge on the Hill.
2: Mr. Perkins,
0: Uh, please remind me of that book.
3: Dan? Boy, Roy, it's called The Boy Crisis.
0: And that's that's exactly what I figured, and that's exactly what I thought it was. I just wanted to make sure. Um, And, you know, we also have tonight uh, foreign policy analysis, Middle East observer, war expert, lobbyist, activist, and best-selling author Kenneth Timmerman will be calling in. Um, And we're very excited to have him on. Uh, Leaders of Blacks for Trump will be calling in later in the show. Uh, Right now on the line, we have our other co-hosts who's Always a great friend of the show and has been with us for so long. Lobbyist, activist, and political strategist, Josh Halabate.
4: How was your holiday, buddy? How was your New Year? How was your Christmas? It was fantastic. Everything uh, everything went well. Good to see some family I hadn't seen in a while. And, uh, you know, I, just remind me how blessed I am.
0: Absolutely, man. You know, and uh, I'll tell you, um, I, I want to make this point to everyone, and I think this is really important. You know, as I grow older, I realize that, and I think more and more people realize the real meaning of Christmas, which is Jesus's birthday. And you know, it it's something that you know when I'm young and when I'm you know at that age, you know, growing up, you're all excited about the presents and Santa. But once you grow up, you really realize the meaning of of what it really entails, and. I just, you know, I love Christmas. I've always loved Christmas. I really, you know, just the way it's all uh, the na- the narrative of it. I've always been a huge fan. Um, but it's just, you know, as you grow older, it's just amazing how much more you learn and how much, you know, just the the way you view things are, are a slight bit different. Um, but I, I do want to get into a lot of different things tonight. Um, first and foremost uh let's talk about the headline Dan and 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 Josh the shutdown continues trump is not going to cave trump is not going to uh you know give in to this sort of situation um it, yeah and it's it's one of those things where you know Dan that either the democrats are going to give the funding and they're going to give trump what he's asking for or they're 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 not going to get anything. I mean, it's,
5: it, Trump
0: will keep this government shut down uh, for as long as needed. And I know you're writing about this. I know you're involved with this, with the media, like talking about this. Uh, but I want to know your thoughts. And uh, by the way, I, I uh, you know I wanted to mention I I hope your Christmas was well. Do you have a great Christmas and a great New Year? Absolutely. Uh, we uh,
3: we were with our four of our grandchildren and I four children. And of course the grandchildren are in the uh, the cesspool of the seas, the uh, the kindergartens, first and second and third grades. Uh, so we both came back from the holidays with a cold, but we're just about over both of them. But it's, uh, it's hard you feel really better. Get to get you get to be my age uh, and my wife's age. It's harder and harder to deal with the young ones because we get older and we're not quite as flexible and we tire easily. So, but it's always fun to see him. Yeah. Yeah, no,
0: absolutely. I'll all, you know, I always love catching up with friends and family at Christmas and, you know, just being off for two weeks, being off the radio for two weeks, it's just been like a huge change of pace for me. It's like I'm getting back into the rhythm. It's, you know, it, it feels, you know, cause I've never, I've never been off the radio this long. So, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. definitely something, uh, to adjust to, for sure. But um, yeah. But Dan, I want your thought. I want your thoughts on this border crisis. What I mean, what, what do you on the government shutdown? I mean, what what do you think is going to be the ultimate, you know, end, end end result of this? I mean, I can tell you right now, firsthand, Trump's not going to cave. Trump's not going to give in. Trump's not going to you know do any deal with the Democrats unless it includes border funding, wall with the wall.
3: So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Let me take this from a different approach. Um, okay. He wanted $5 billion. Actually, wanted $25 billion. Think then, before the holidays, before the government shut down, he was looking for between 5 and $6 billion. How much will he concede and still claim victory?
0: I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question.
3: That's why I asked him. Josh. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I
0: don't know. I I think he's going to get two and a half billion. I per- to me, I, I think,
1: think he's going to get. I don't think he's going
0: to get. I don't think he's going to get the full amount he's asking for. I think he's going to get two and a half billion. I don't think he's going to get. Uh, I think the Democrats are going to. You know, lowball him as much as possible like they do with everything. And I also saw a brand new article today uh, that the Democrats are adding a bunch of abortion um, things in the bill, uh, basically kind of sneaking that in. That was all on Breivar. And this is just it blows my mind how the Democrats think they're going to have all their their way. But you're not going to give Trump what he wants. Get the get the, get out of here. Like, get
4: serious, Josh. You had a thought though. Yeah, you know, Dan. To answer your question, I honestly, where to the point of where how much he would get to still claim victory. I think if he gets anything for it, he can claim victory because they've been telling him no. This is something that's not going to happen. We're not going to build a wall. We're not going to do all this stuff. And if he gets any amount of funding to begin building of it, I think that within itself is a victory. Um, you know, because they have to cave well but
3: let me let me, let me let me throw this to both of you. Nancy Pelosi has already before she 's been elected Speaker of the House. she has already on national television at least three times driven a, a serious stake in the ground, and she said quote, "No money for the wall." So she's she said we're going to give him nothing. How does she give him two and a half million? How does she give him anything and have any credibility with her party and with her constituents if she caves and gives money to Trump? Well said. Yeah. I mean, I mean,
4: you know, she's a Democrat. Yeah, well,
3: <laughs> this is what Democrats. She's hear. a Democrat. <laughs> Okay, that that, that that works. Let me let me give you let me go a different direction if I might for just a moment. <laughs> the reality is that the Democrats only have control of the House. And yeah. during the term during most of the, after the first 2 years of the Obama presidency, when he had control of both the House and the Senate, when he lost control of the House to the Republicans and the Democrats controlled the Senate, there were 350 pieces of legislation that were passed in the House that Harry Reid never gave to a committee assignment. 350 pieces of legislation. So... Is it possible that Nancy Pelosi knows that that can if they give anything to the wall and they put all the things that Roy's talking about in the bill it'll never get a hearing in the Senate but it will pass the house and Nancy can yeah. say see we did what we wanted to but the Republicans killed it now, on top of that, and, and, let's, uh, oh, let me finish. Let's suppose suppose that the Republicans fall apart and it passes the Senate. Under the Constitution, it has to go to the president to be signed. If the president vetoes the bill, it has to go back to the House for an override. In order, based on the current mix of the House, In order for the Democrats to override a presidential veto, they've got to convince 55 Republicans and 100% of the Democrats to vote with the Democratic leadership. And if that happens and it goes to the Senate, the the Democrats have to get 66 votes. There are 53 Republicans, so they've got to get... Almost thirteen of the Republicans to join with all the Democrats in over to override a presidential veto. So maybe it's all basically bullcrap. Well, let well
0: let's look at you know real quick. You bring up a great point, Dan, and I want to get to Josh's thoughts and then I'm going to introduce our special guest. But I, I want I want to make a point here of what you just said. This is very important, Dan. You bring up so many. You can bring up multiple points that are very logical and and come to, you know, come to the surface. First of all, let's just say right now, and and I haven't announced this yet on the show yet tonight because yeah. the show just, just started a little bit ago. But it is official, just like I predicted. Nancy Pelosi is now the House Speaker, everybody. So her and Trump will be working together, being side, you know, side, side by side at times. And Nancy's not going to get anything done unless she agrees to some of the Trump agenda, or at least most of the Trump agenda, because you got to play fair, Nancy. I mean, we saw Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan work together. I mean, that there, that there are ways this can, uh, you know, be handled. I mean, let me ask you, Dan, do you see uh, the Tip O'Neill-Reagan circumstance possibly similar to Pelosi and Trump? I mean, Trump has said that he he doesn't mind Pelosi. I mean, he's happy for her. Sometimes they get along. What do you think?
3: Go to um, the Drudge Report and look at the commentary yesterday of Nancy Pelosi's yep. own daughter criticizing her, saying how she will cut people's heads off. And now Nancy Pelosi bleeding. is... Right, Nancy Pelosi is no Tip O'Neill. I'm
5: no, not
0: there's not going to be. I'm not saying there's not going to be any
3: cooperation. She, the, if you look at the way she sat in the meeting with the president before Christmas and her defiant attitude, now that she's right. Speaker of the House, what makes you possibly think that she's going to cooperate at all, Josh? What do you think?
4: I don't think. Here's the deal. I don't think it's in any interest for them to cooperate. And, Dan, I liked the, what you said. Now, the only reason I would, would agree with you, because I, I, I think it's interesting. I'm not exactly told on it, but the, the reason that I do think that what you said is accurate would be if the Democrats thought that there would be a better chance of whoever the challenger is in 2020 beating Trump if the government was shut down. I personally don't think that will affect his, quote-unquote, draft stock. But if they think it will, I think the government's going to be shut down a while. And, I mean, I think they would go about it the way that you just discussed. They'd have to make it look like the Democrats did what they were supposed to and that the Republicans screwed it up. Yeah, uh, and I I understand what
3: you're saying. I would say, and I know Roy needs to get to his next guest, but I I would just say that that I really believe that the – that the Democrats are going to come out swinging and doing all kinds of committees and subpoenas and everything else, and that they're they're going to spend the next year doing nothing yep. to advance the, yep. the agenda of the American people. All they're people. going to be
0: trying to do is throwing out like like for instance, let let me give you an example, Dan. I know exactly where you're going with this. Example today, a guy named uh, last name Sherman out of California. His first day on the job, articles of impeachment for Trump. I mean, this is what they're going to do for the next two years in the House. They're not going to get anything done for their Democratic supporters. But, unfortunately, a lot of their Democratic supporters are delusional and think Trump's going to get impeached. So you have – I guess you have a mixture. But, you know, it's, it's such a shame because, you know, the fact that that's their main narrative and agenda, and they know it's a – A pipe dream? It's just sad.
3: The biggest risk to the Democratic Party is that eventually Robert Mueller reports nothing.
0: And when would you think that's going to be? When do you think he's finally going to come out with that report? When do you think he's going to show us? I mean, he's too embarrassed. Even Rudy Giuliani is saying, put up or shut up, Mueller. Show us what you got and stop it you know and even giuliani was on the air the other night saying he thinks mueller is embarrassed because he knows mueller doesn't have anything
3: i would say i've said this to you before when you've asked this question before even before the midterms i said that robert Mueller will not report anything prior to the 2020 election he will be emboldened by the activities of the democrats in the house and so therefore he will keep his investigation open until just before the 2020 midterm ele- uh, general elections. All those and and you know, you know, the next 30, 60 days, not going to happen because remember, and you know, the sad, again,
0: pa- and you know, the sad, you know, the sad part about this whole thing is that the Democrats think this is going to help them. But in reality, when everything comes out, there's going to be nothing. And this is going to be, it's going to be trump saying, i told you so and trump's going to get reelected in a landslide and i i i really think there's this just makes them look bad the democratic party but go ahead joshman we'll get to our our guest our first guest
4: you know i would agree and uh you know i think i think this is a, it's going to be a telling time to see what the democrats decide to do you know whether or not you know I think that they should embrace, obviously, as a Republican, I think they should embrace some, uh, you know, a type of agenda where even though they don't like Trump, they could at least move some policy forward in the country. But like Dan was saying, and like you were just saying, Rory, I'm assuming from what they've done is that they're going to double down on our anti-Trump agenda uh, to, you know, continue to uh, rip this country apart. So, uh, I mean, time will tell, but, I mean, that's the inkling that we're getting as of this time.
0: Yeah, and, and and you have you know you have these people that are coming out uh, as candidates, and what 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 let, let's ask this honest question, and I'm going to get to my next guest, but this is a very important question. What do the Democrats have to run on? What do they have to run on? We have the best economy we've ever had, lowest black unemployment, lowest Hispanic unemployment lowest female unemployment, lowest Asian unemployment in the history of politics. We just, we're winning the trade war with China right now. There was a new report in Breitbart today. Uh, what else? Oh, we're about to meet with Kim Jong-un again. Uh, I mean, it just keeps going on. We're literally at the best with some of our foreign policy, uh, with all these different nations and people bowing down to Trump. And we all know nobody respected Obama. Um, but you just have all these things that are happening and I just don't think how, I just don't see how any Democrat can come in there and say, well, uh, you know, what talking points would they have? I just, I just don't see it. I just, I think Trump has this in the bag. I mean, what what are they going to play? Play the victim? Are they going to play the socialism role? Are they going to come out and play the whole Bernie thing? That thing, that doesn't work. That's right. You know, it's just I, I just I, I don't know. I mean, I you know they they seem so confident confident about twenty twenty the Democrats that they're going to beat Trump or impeach him before twenty twenty, and they just sound so delusional. It it's crazy to me. It just blows my mind. Um, I do I do want to welcome our, our very first guest and uh, very very popular guy, uh, a war award winner, international bestselling author, public speaker. American educator, frequent frequent guest on Oprah, The Today Show, and Good Morning America in the past, activist for male and female rights and entrepreneurs, Dr. Warren Farrell, how are you, sir? Dr. Warren Farrell,
2: are you there? Dr. Farrell, hello. Oh, oh, Kenneth Timmer, Kenneth Timmerman, are you on the line? Uh, I'm here, yes. Ken, Kenneth, Ken, I,
0: I forgot. Warren Farrell's coming on in the second hour. Let Hold on, hold on. Foreign policy analysis, Middle East observer, war expert, lobbyist, activist, and best-selling author Kenneth Timmerman is on the line. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm doing very well, thank you. Well, it's good to have you on. Sorry, I got mixed up with the guests, um, but it is an honor to have you here. Um, you've been on before, it's been a while, it's been since the summer. Uh, first and foremost, I do wanna, you know, in case the audience we have so many new audience members and we have people listening in nineteen different countries and uh you know, thousands of people that listen live. So for people that don't know, um give your background, give your resume, you know, um, you know, tell everybody, you know, what you're up to, what you've done in the past. You've written many books. Uh, you've been a a very uh, strong observer of the Middle East. You've been a very good war expert. Uh, you gave different advising information to the various uh, you know uh, politicians. I mean, I know you've done so much. Uh,
2: well, thanks, Roy, for that. Uh, I started off as a war correspondent in 1982, probably before many people who uh, were who are listening to the show were born. Uh, many people, in my family were not born in 1982 when I began working. Mm-hmm. And, and for much of my life, I've been an investigative reporter when that was still an honorable profession. Uh, there are very few of us left who are true investigative reporters uh, today that has, you know the, the whole profession is coming into disrepute. disrepute. Uh, my books are at Kentimmerman.com. I just returned from Mosul in northern Iraq and the Nineveh Plain and that's what I understood that you wanted to talk about, uh, the situation of Iraqi Christians, something I've been reporting yeah. on for the past uh, yeah. 10 years, 11 years actually, uh, going back and forth to the region, to to uh, not just to Iraq, but to interview Christian refugees in Syria, in uh, Jordan, in Lebanon, uh, and elsewhere. And the situation is pretty dire. I mean, I've got to give credit to Vice President uh, Mike and to the administration oh, yeah. as a whole. They have yeah. turned around U.S. policy in a way that yep. I never thought would be po- possible. And yeah. uh, this is something that's very good. They've, they've, uh, Mike Pence sure. a year ago in October of 2017 announced yeah. that the, administ- the Trump administration was going to ensure that U.S. aid Money and we spend a lot of money in Iraq Okay
6: and, oh, yeah. President, oh,
2: yeah. Trump, president Trump You know We're not really happy about that When he ran for president in the campaign in 2016 and he's still not happy We spent a lot of money yeah. in Iraq And most of that money Up until recently Has been spent on Muslim communities Who do not need U.S. aid And Vice President Trump Last year said okay we are going to redirect USA dollars away from those Muslim communities who have 57 countries around the world, including Turkey and Saudi Arabia, to take care of them. We're going to redirect it to the Christians and the Yazidis, the victims of the ISIS genocide in Iraq. And I went just in late October to go see whether this was actually happening. And I've got to say, I was pretty astonished. Uh, I talked to the uh, to uh, church leaders and local leaders on the ground in Karakosh, in in um,
3: uh,
2: Karamlesh, uh, in other towns in northern Iraq and the Nineveh Plain, um, and they told me they, they they could show me they are starting to finally get those U.S. aid dollars to help them bring back their communities, their, the Christians, into northern Iraq. And by the way, what people don't understand is that uh, the area around Mosul used to be called Nineveh. Right? Nineveh is, should be familiar to our listeners who read their Bible, you know, Jonah and the whale. Jonah went to Nineveh, and uh, Nineveh afterwards became one of the first uh, regions of the world proselytized by the followers of Jesus, uh, St. Thomas. Went to Nineveh in the first century AD So just you know, a decade, two decades After the crucifixion of our Lord St. Thomas went there and he proselytized The community of the Nineveh And Nineveh has been a Christian area Ever since then And has been constantly uh, occup- Continuously occupied by Christians Who, by the way, speak Aramaic In their church services and I've gone to church in, in both Chaldean churches, Syrian, uh, Syriac, Catholic churches, and Orthodox churches. They speak, speak Aramaic in the church services. The language of Jesus is astonishing.
0: Oh, you're absolutely right. And you bring up so many good points. And, I, and, and you know, you look at the Middle East and you look at, you know, all the issues we're having there. First and foremost, I want to get back to this topic, but I want to ask you, and and I I think this is a really important question. What are your thoughts on get get because you're a foreign policy expert and you know all about you know uh, this you know everything about the war the wars and stuff like that and overseas the Middle East. How would you give Trump a rating um, in terms of his experience and, and uh, gain and, and what he's done for our foreign policy?
2: Well, Donald Trump is very much like Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan was yep. completely uh, uh, misunderstood by the media, misrepresented by the media. They presented him as a yep. dummy, as a dunce, uh, somebody who had no understanding. In fact, for 25 years, 30 years, he had a radio show – Uh, where every single week he was talking about national policy, about tax policy, about foreign policy. He was an anti-communist crusader, somebody who understood the – Donald Reagan understood the evils of communism. Donald Trump, in his own way, has been doing the same thing for 25, 30 years before he ascended to the presidency. He's been talking about tax policy. He's been talking about the Chinese ripping us off the – the, the NAFTA ripping us off uh, tr- Bad uh, Trade policies in the United States He's been preparing for this role For the past 35 Years and I noticed even I think it was NBC did a profile on him where they Showed early Interviews with Donald Trump from the Late 1980s where He talked about yeah. the exact same things That he's talking yep. Today so I think You know, Trump is. uh, You know, we his foreign policy views, his make America first views, were out there well before the 2016 election. People knew what they were getting into. They knew who he was. It wasn't a secret. Um, And he's carrying out his promises one by one. And I've got to say, as a Republican, and I am, I am, I'm I'm very proud to be a Republican. It's a thrill to see a United States who, president who is a Republican, carrying out his promises every single day, every single day. Exactly, and, and,
0: and I'm so glad, yeah. Ken, you have this enthusiasm like I do because every single day I've said to everybody on this show since day one, and I make a lot of videos and I do, different, I do my TV show as well, but I say every single day Trump is delivering a new promise to us. Every day it's Christmas. Within two years, he has fulfilled over seventy percent of his agenda. Again, that's within two years, over seventy percent of his agenda. Most presidents don't even fulfill ten percent
2: after eight years. That's right, and and, you know, let's look at the Middle East. He said he was going to move the U.S. embassy uh, to Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people. Congress passed a law requiring that in 1995. And ever since then, every candidate for president, including Barack Hussein Obama II, said they were going to do it. Yep. <laughs> and every single president, until Donald Trump, did not do it. It's only Donald Trump who finally carried out that promise, the will of the American people, and moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv. To, the, to Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people And that's just one thing, that's just one detail But it's important Oh, you're you're
0: absolutely right And, you know, I, I know my co-hosts have, have quite a few questions for you But, you know, very, very important thing right here And, and you know, this has been a, a big topic uh, lately and, and I think it's, you know, something that you are probably very familiar with What are your thoughts? And your true thoughts of Trump withdrawing from Syria, uh, you know, getting the troops out of there. What what do you think about that? All all your experience in the war, all your experience with this research and all this stuff, what are
2: your true thoughts? Well, okay. So it, when he announced it, I think he made a mistake in the way that he announced withdrawal from Syria because he said just peremptorially, we're getting out of Syria without any preparation. And I think that – it yeah. was a mistake. And I think since yeah. then you've seen him fill in the gaps, fill in the background, so we could all understand where this was coming from. And he promised to get out of Syria from the get go in twenty sixteen when he was a candidate. He said, Why do we need to be in Syria? What's this all about? Russia should be in Syria fighting ISIS. Turkey should be there fighting ISIS. Others should be fighting ISIS, not us. And and nevertheless, once he was elected, he understood that, okay, they're not going to fight ISIS the way that we can, so we need to have a military presence in Syria to coordinate U.S. military assets and intelligence assets, which we did for two years. Now ISIS has been effectively beaten. They no longer have a territorial presence in either Iraq or Syria. Yes, there are still ISIS sympathizers, People have floated the number of is twenty to 30,000 in Syria and Iraq. They are not organized on the ground. They do not own territory the way that they have in the past. So we have accomplished, President Trump has accomplished that first mission of smashing ISIS as a territorial caliphate. And that was the only reason that justified us having a military presence in Syria. Now he's talking about redeploying, bringing troops home but also making sure that we have the forces necessary in neighboring Iraq. And and i make sure our listeners understood this, understand this. Uh, Syria and Iraq are neighbors. It's kind of like uh, Maryland and Virginia. So he's pulling the troops out of Virginia and redeploying them across the Potomac into Maryland. (laughs) There are going to be troops in Maryland still able to deal with whatever may occur uh, next door in Syria. So that's what's happening. My big concern, and, and the president has made it very clear that he's aware of this. Uh, he didn't at first, but he's made it since then. My big concern was that we were going to allow Iran to have free reign inside of Syria. And the president, president Trump has made very clear that is not going to happen. We will not allow Iran to use syria as a stepping stone to attack israel we the united states will not allow iran to establish the land bridge from tehran to northern lebanon which has been the big big strategic goal they proclaimed it with great uh, fanfare last december and the president said that's not going to happen it doesn't matter whether we have 2,000 troops in Syria or zero troops in Syria, we're not going to let that happen. So that makes me feel very comfortable and makes me understand that this president truly gets it. Uh, and, and by the way, his Secretary of Defense did not get it. Mattis did not get it. Mattis is an old-school um, old guy. Let's have troops everywhere. Uh, let's deploy all over the world. Uh, let's have liaison relationships with different armed forces. President Trump is going back to George Washington let us reduce right. our foreign entanglements. Right.
0: And let, let, let me play the quick clip, and then I want to get uh, Dan and Josh's thoughts. And I want to play the quick clip about Trump talking about Mattis. Uh, one, four.
5: In Afghanistan, uh, you have one ISIS in Syria, but in Afghanistan, Taliban is taking ground. And you mentioned India. What role do you
1: want India to well, play? Well, I think India should be involved in Afghanistan. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. You can talk about our generals. I gave our generals all the money they wanted. They didn't do such a great job in Afghanistan. They've been fighting in Afghanistan for 19 years. General Mattis thanked me profusely for getting him $700 billion. He couldn't believe it. General Mattis thanked me even more the following year when I got him $716 billion. He couldn't believe it because our military was depleted. Now we're rebuilding our military. We're getting, in fact, Pat was very responsible for... A lot of the orders for the new F-35 fighter jets and F-18s and all of the things we're doing, including ships and missiles and everything. But General Mattis was so thrilled. Well, what's he done for me? How has he done in Afghanistan? Not too good. Not too good. I'm not happy with what he's done in Afghanistan, and I shouldn't be happy. But he was very happy. He was very thankful when I got him $700 billion, and then the following year, $716 billion. So, I mean, I wish him well. I hope he does well. But as you know, President Obama fired him, and essentially so did I. I want
7: results.
1: (laughs) We're going to do something that's right. We are talking to the Taliban. We're talking to a lot of different people. But here's the thing, because you mentioned India. India is there. Russia is there. Russia used to be the Soviet Union. Afghanistan made it Russia, because they went bankrupt fighting in Afghanistan, Russia. Mm-hmm. So, you take a look at other countries, Pakistan is there, they should be fighting, but Russia should be fighting. The reason Russia was in, in Afghanistan was because terrorists were going into Russia. They were right to be there. The problem is, it was a tough fight. And literally they went bankrupt. They went into being called Russia again as opposed to the Soviet Union. You know, a lot of a lot of these places you're reading about now are no longer part of Russia because of Afghanistan. But why isn't Russia there? Why isn't India there? Why isn't Pakistan there? Why are we there? We're six thousand miles away. But I don't mind. We want to help our People, we want to help other nations. You do have terrorists, mostly Taliban and ISIS. And I'll give you an example. So Taliban is our enemy. ISIS is our enemy. We have an area that I brought up with our generals four or five weeks ago where Taliban is here, ISIS is here, and they're fighting each other. I said, why don't you let them fight? Why are we getting in the middle of it? I said, let them fight. They're both our enemies. Let them fight. Sir, we want to do it. They go in and and they end up fighting both of them. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. I think I would have been a good general, but who knows. But you know what, these are two (laughs) enemies that are fighting against each other, and we end up going in and fighting. And what are we doing? But I say this, India, great relationship with Prime Minister Modi. He's a great gentleman and a great man, and he's done a fantastic job. He's brought the country together. India, Russia. You look at some of the satellite countries that are extremely wealthy with oil surrounding. I mean, I spoke to some of them. They, they, I said to a certain country, very rich country, what would you do if the United States pulled out? Oh, we'd be taken over by the Taliban and terrorists. I said, ah, then why are you charging us when we have to use your country to send product through. Why are you charging us when we send airplanes over your country? We're doing the job for you. Why are you charging us? He said to me, very great gentleman, smart. He said to me, well, nobody ever asked me not to. I said, I'm asking you not to. He said, we will not charge you. And I'm talking about millions and millions of dollars. Flights over his country. But I said to him, what would happen if we weren't here? And he looks at me and he goes, we would be overrun. We could not defend ourselves. And yet he charges us, but he doesn't charge us anymore.
0: He is the great. He is the greatest thing to ever happen to American history. I tell you, man, this guy is a machine. This guy is something that is so profound. And I mean, I've never seen anything like Donald J. Trump. Uh, you know, Kenneth. I I know you have thoughts on this uh, video. Uh Dan, Dan I want to get your thoughts so uh, you know uh, on this whole thing and obviously I know you have questions for Kenneth.
3: Yeah, I, I do, thank you. Uh I, I really want to focus on one particular area that is not getting really any play at all. How has the quality of life of Christians and Muslims and whoever in the areas that you visited this year, change because of what's happened with the defeat of ISIS in the Middle East?
2: Well, thank you for the question. Um, first of all, Christians are beginning to return. Muslims have already returned. Uh, in East Mosul, uh, which I visited, as well as West Mosul, which is completely destroyed, is the ancient Christian part of Mosul. But in East Mosul, uh, the Muslims basically came out of their basements, and have reopened their stores, and, and they have security, and, and they're able to go out on the streets, and East Mosul is returning to normal very quickly. Um, but West Mosul, where the Christians were, has been demolished. I did a um, spread in the New York Post on December 16th in the Sunday edition. You can find it at my website, com, and there's a photo there taken from the what's left of the the upper story of a fifth century christian church in west mosul and you just, it's a panorama panorama photo uh that i took and it's just devastation you know stones upon stones there are no buildings left it's just stones upon stones um, so it's a real challenge for christians to return in the middle of a plain, which is just outside of mosul it's kind of like the suburbs of new york if you wish it's uh, uh, you know, like Ridgewood, New Jersey, or or Westchester, New York, uh, it's it's closer than that even. Uh, the Nineveh Plain is different. Uh, there, the uh, it was not an inner city; it was more suburban, with with an urban center. There, the, the the Christians, and these are Christian towns: Bartella, and Karamlesh, and and Baghdada or Karakosh, Here. Christians are returning. Roughly 50 percent who were there before the ISIS takeover in 2014 have come back already. And one of my comments uh, to friends who were there, Christian leaders and and city leaders, was that, hey, you know, they took us around in the evening to go look at the the city in in Karakosh, the biggest city there. It's 60,000. Now it's about 30,000. Half the people have come back. But the lights, everybody had their lights on. You know, the, the shops were open at night. Uh, restaurants were open. Liquor stores were open. Everything was open, and people were walking the streets. It was packed. And I said, you know, you really ought to have a webcam set up so Christians who have fled can see life is returning. Life is returning to normal in these areas and then middle the, the plane. People need to understand that, and they need to come back. And here's the big thing. Uh, the United States government, for the first time ever is trying to help Christians to come back to their ancestral homeland here in the Nineveh Plain. And they're helping them to rebuild schools, to rebuild churches, to rebuild community centers, uh, and to bring back a normalcy uh, you know, to uh, people who have returned. It's a It was a wonderful thing to, to, to see, and I believe it will continue. And I think that The United States government under President Trump and the vice president are absolutely uh, determined, and uh, they are committed to this, to bringing Christians back
3: to their historic homeland. If you you look at how the the countries are reformulating themselves, um, are they different? Are they going back to the period of time before ISIS took control or something else?
2: I think there's significant change. And, again, uh, remember in 2014, when ISIS came into Mosul in northern Iraq, they came in in 24 hours, and they (coughs) occupied the third largest city in Iraq. And they did so because the Muslim population welcomed them with open arms. Why did they do that? Because the Iraqi government forces were seen as oppressors. They were seen as persecutors, uh, and they were. One of the people I interviewed uh, when I was in Iraq recently uh, was the uh, commanding general of the police, the National Police Force in East Mosul. He was a Kurd, but he, he was there before ISIS came in, and he returned to power after ISIS was kicked out three years later. And he said, look, in 2014, even I was against the government because the government was oppressing people, the government troops, the, the military in mosul were oppressing ordinary people uh it was normal he said that ordinary people would support isis because they didn't understand what was going to come they thought that isis was coming to liberate them from the iraqi government so the iraqi government has understood i think has understood that they have got to change their ways they've got to change the behavior of their army they cannot bring for example shiite troops from the south Shiite Muslim troops from the south to persecute Sunni Muslim inhabitants in Mosul and Christians in Mosul. So
7: there
2: ha- I-, I think there has been a change in the Iraqi government. I interviewed the um, head of the military command, uh, Najim al-Jabouri, uh, who's a Sunni mm-hmm. Muslim general uh, working, who worked extensively with the United States and led the coalition effort to get rid of ISIS. And he has made a dramatic change in the way that the military and the police force interact with the local population. And it has been – I was able to see on the ground this has made a big, big difference. They're friends and allies and protectors rather than what they did before ISIS as their oppressors. So that's a big shift. Roy,
3: I would like to ask one more question if I could. Yeah, Dan. Dan, I, I Dan go you. ahead. Then
0: I'm. Dan, go ahead. Then I'm going to Josh after you.
3: Can uh, I? I I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question about one of your very early on comments. That, and I'm paraphrasing, that you made one of the last last investigative reporters. If that's true, what are they teaching in the school of journalism, and why do we have so many or so few? Investigative reporters in the American news media.
2: Well, you know that that is a great question, and I don't have an easy answer to it because I've been out of the game uh, teaching younger reporters, and you know, in a way, I'm now older. I'm over sixty, and 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 uh, I call myself sometimes a recovering journalist because I'm so dis- so uh, I feel a disgrace when I wa- listen to NBC. I used to work for NBC. What they do today is a disgrace. I used to work for ABC and CBS. What they do today is a disgrace. Uh, (laughs) You know, and and, in a way, I kind of would like to get back and start to teach in a in in a in a public college or even a community college to teach journalism and teach what I knew and what I learned. I never went to journalism school. Okay, I learned it was the it was what we called the the school of uh, shoe leather. You know, I learned all the streets. I learned the streets of Beirut taken hostage in 1982 on my first mission as a reporter, uh, uh, as a newbie. Uh, I learned on the ground, and I learned to love that region of the world, by the way, even though, you know, they nearly killed me in 1982. I learned to, learn that, to love that region of the world and love the people there uh, and to understand that there's no black and white. There's no black and white. Things are always shades. They're nuances of color. Um, and, uh, but you, you learn a lot on the ground. I did not learn in textbooks. I learned on the ground. And unfortunately, I think many of our young reporters don't do that, uh, and they they go to the story with an ideology rather than letting the facts tell them the story. My view is you let the facts tell the story. Thank very, you.
7: Very,
4: very well said, Ken. Ken, thank you. Um, Josh, go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting coincidence. You know, I I heard you were coming on the show tonight, and it was actually Rory had just told me that right after I had went and uh, I have a habit of of re-listening to old debates, and I had just listened to the, you know, the George Bush and John Kerry first presidential debate um, because, you know, I'm only 20 years old, and that was something I was, well, I think I was six for that. So I I like to go back and listen to try to get the, the political climate of that time. You know? And, you know, one of the big things that they talked about for the first half of the debate was everything going on in Iraq. Obviously, this is uh, right in the, the heat of all, you know, of bin Laden. And, some yeah. of you know, bin, you know and bin Laden was alive at that point, And the, the climate was crazy. But I realized that one thing that they did not talk about was really anything involving um, the people who weren't violent at that time. One of the things that they didn't care about was, that never, no Christians were ever brought up, no nonviolent Muslims were ever brought up. nothing that no civilians were ever discussed. There was really just a focus on um, who who the enemy was. I don't know if that is something that you had seen or you had seen as a problem or something that was really never brought up, uh, at least publicly in that debate or that I ever heard of
2: Well, you're right about that, and uh, you know the United States government and politicians were worried about the enemy. They were worried about people who were killing us. And many of my Christian friends would joke, sadly, but they would joke and say, well, you know, we can't get the attention of the U.S. government. Maybe if we blow something up, we'll get their attention. And they said, but of course we're not going to do that because that's not the way we do things. Uh, But that was how they felt at that time. Uh, And I'll tell you, I I, uh, first began reporting on the plight of Christians in Iraq in 2007. Uh, Went on a number of mission trips uh, with Christian Solidarity International, uh, the Religious Freedom Coalition in the U.S., uh, and others. And uh, after two or three of these trips, uh, we came back to Washington and went to meet the then uh, Undersecretary of State for Human Rights and, well, persecution uh, at the time, who happened to be a friend of mine, Ellen Sowerbrae, who had been a candidate for governor in maryland we believe had won the, the election in 1994 and and i said to ellen i said look here's what we found the u.s number one the u.s government is not helping these people their church christian churches are being blown up the u.s is not doing anything about it we're not investigating the muslims because they're obviously jihadi groups we're not going after them and worse even worse the christian uh, interpreters who are working with U.S. special forces, risking their lives to help in the interrogation of captured jihadi groups. We have promised to protect them, and when they have become exposed, and I gave her examples of this, we promised we'd bring them here to this country. And instead what's happened, they go into U.S. embassies in Amman, Jordan uh, in particular, or in Lebanon, and get uh, shunted over to the United Nations, which is run by Muslims. And their files get put in the trash can, literally in the trash can. I raised this to her. I wrote about this in ISIS Begins, uh, my book on the persecution of the Iraqi Christians. It, it, you can find it at kentimmerman.com. And the scenes in that book, which is a novel, uh, but it, the scenes from that book are very, very close to reality. And you see what happens to an Iraqi Christian interpreter working for U.S. Special Forces as he tries to get the United States government to honor up that pledge that they made to him to protect him and his family if they were ever subject to reprisals from the Muslim jihadi groups that he was helping us to identify. And it's pretty shocking. And by the way, I have to say, unfortunately, it's very, very real. And uh, Ellen Salloray did her best to rectify
4: that. But once Obama came in, uh, it was all over.
3: You know, I, I yeah. have one
4: more question, and, and this, is, this is kind of a big one. Um, and Go ahead, it's, Josh. It's kind of, you know, a, a broad thing. But if you were in the, the shoes, so to speak, of President Bush and President Obama during both of their times dealing with issues over in the Middle East and specifically Iraq, what would you have done differently? I don't know if there's anything that, you know, points out to you or maybe a couple things.
2: Well, first of all, with President Bush, I tried to get his administration to honor their commitment to Iraqi Christians. And I personally uh, you know, made an effort uh, to do that with people like Bill Murray, the Religious Freedom Coalition. After we had mission trips to northern Iraq, we had specific cases cases of yeah, Christian Re- interpreters. Real quick, who, real, so quick tried Kenneth, to
0: do real quick, that. Ken- Real quick, Kenneth, I I, I know – yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. I I didn't want to interrupt what you were saying, but I know you were strongly involved with the Bush administration during what you were just saying, like trying to get them to to do what you were – I remember that.
2: With Obama – thank you. I appreciate that. With Obama, it's pretty simple. Obama never should have pulled us out of Iraq. Uh, in 2011. That was an absolute catastrophe. Uh, And he did it because he could not negotiate a status of forces agreement with the Iraqi government. He never insisted on it. In other words, an agreement that would have protected U.S. troops in Iraq from prosecution for war crimes or alleged war crimes or stuff like that. And instead, he pulled us out. And the jihadi groups were just waiting for that moment. They had a date. They had a time. They knew when we were leaving Uh, And they just waited for their moment, and that led to the ISIS takeover that we saw. It was crystal clear. Everybody saw it coming, except for Obama, who called them the JV team.
0: Do you? Do you? And I want to let Josh, uh, you know, comment. But do you think that Bush could have prevented a lot of what happened? in Iraq and in the Middle East, do you think he could have just done certain things differently that would have led us on more of a promising road than in, in a, you know, kind of a messy situation?
2: Well, the the problem that George W. Bush had was that he trusted the people that he hired and uh, he was at the, that's number one. And number two, he was misled by some of the people that he did not personally hire, but who were in the permanent administration. He was the first victim of the shadow government, or what we now call the deep state. I wrote a book about this in 2007, um, uh, about the, the effort to sabotage uh, George W. Bush and the war in Iraq. It was called Shadow Warriors, and it detailed how the people in the CIA and the State Department uh, went against the, the stated administration policy in Iraq, which was we will go in, defeat Saddam Hussein, defeat his army, and then turn the country over to Iraqis. That was the policy. It was the policy not just of the Bush administration, it had been the policy of the Clinton administration. It was uh, actually uh, put out in an act of Congress, the Iraq Liberation Act in 1997. Uh, and the State Department, the CIA, Hated it ever since The act of Congress in 1997 And they were determined to overthrow this And so once Bush selected Jerry Bremer as the person Who was going to go in and run the Coalition uh, authority After the liberation of Iraq Bremer arrives in Iraq In May, three days later He had never been to Iraq, never been to the Middle East He was a State Department hand right? He was part of the deep state He overturned the policy of the Bush administration without ever consulting the president or everybody else, anybody else with three decrees. Number one, he dissolved the Iraqi army of 400,000 men strong. These were guys with guns sitting at home waiting for orders and waiting for a paycheck. He said, no, no, uh, forget it. You're out of here. No paychecks. Oh, but we're not going to take your guns away. Number two, uh, he uh, dissolved uh, the Ba'ath party All the way down to the level of school teachers. Now, the Ba'ath Party was Saddam Hussein's party. They were the oppressors. Let's not mistake this. They were the oppressors. But he went down five levels, as I say, down to the level of local school teachers, which is a dreadful mistake. Made enemies there too. And the third mistake, all of these were on the same day. It was decree number one, number two, number three. The third mistake was that he fired the Iraqi Governing Council, the people that we had been cultivating for a decade to take over. So he fired the local Iraqis that we were supposed to hand government over to, and he declared an occupation. And then two weeks later, Jerry Bremer, this brainchild, you know one of the geniuses of the State Department, the same geniuses who t- today are criticizing President Trump for pulling out of Syria, this genius couldn't understand that there was an insurrection in Iraq against us i mean that's president bush fought that president trump is fighting that today now we call it the deep state but these geniuses who claim to understand so well how the world runs uh have made mistake after mistake after mistake they've got us into war after war after war and god bless donald trump for being the dummy who's Kicked them all out. Who's kicked out the Jim Mattis and the rest of them? And who's been the dummy who understands? Oh, gee, you know the emperor's got no clothes on. You know, he's a kid. He says the emperor's got no clothes on. Uh, let's just get out of this war, which wasn't ours to begin with.
0: Yeah, well, very, very well, very well said. And and I know I have. Um, I know I want to let you uh, respond, Josh. And I know I have some other people on the line that I want to get to. Um uh, go ahead Josh.
4: Yeah, you know, this is kind of a selfish question, but it's kind of a follow up on my, you know, uh de- debate question. You know, one of the things that uh former Senator Kerry at that time as the Democrat nominee kept bringing up in in that debate Hello, in 2004 Amy. was Saddam Hussein. Um and you know how he was saying like that Finnegan? George Bush had basically yes, made, he made him the
6: card at dinner. Correct.
4: Had basically he had Apparently made him uh, had made him an had made him an enemy that That's they the didn't need to make. I was curious what you thought about that.
6: Well, uh, oh.
2: there's oh. some There was some truth to that,
6: and uh, it, it's something admit, she, she may have run into a problem or something in the process.
2: Yeah, this is something the French were saying at the time. Sorry, we're, I, had
0: we're, sorry I, had to mute, I had to mute some people on the line. I think there was other people talking in the background. People got
2: distracted. Okay, so so uh, Josh was asking about Saddam Hussein and and whether we had created him and the French were arguing, arguing that the French also argued that Saddam was the best bulwark against the Iranians. And on that score, they were right. Um, But look, Saddam Hussein was a dictator. Saddam Hussein massacred. 200,000, 300,000 of his own people. He was a massive human rights violator. I mean, on a huge scale, uh, not like the Shah of Iran that Jimmy Carter and his geniuses thought that we should get rid of because he's a <laughs> human rights violator. There were the Shah of Iran probably, and I've seen the figures on this. He executed, uh, he executed uh, in quotes. Uh, there were there were deaths by power, you know, paramilitary squads and the intelligence services of perhaps 350 people
4: over 35
2: years, over 35 years, 350, over 35 years. When the Mullahs took over, they, they killed 3,500 people in the first day, first day that they took over. They've killed hundred thousands, hundreds of thousands since. Saddam Hussein was no better. He's killed hundreds of thousands of his own people, a serial human rights violator. Plus, he had weapons of mass destruction, uh, if he had dismantled certain of those weapons, he maintained the stockpiles to recreate them, and that was, was ascertained by all of our investigations after the war. There was no reason for us to continue with Saddam Hussein in power, especially after 9-11. I, I defy any Democrat who's honest to say that they would not have made the same decision. Hillary Clinton, by the way, voted. To go to war against Saddam Hussein in 2002 I defy any Democrat who's honest To say with the same intelligence That George W. Bush had They would not have made the same decision after 9-11 You could not allow A dictator with ties to terrorists And known weapons of mass destruction programs To continue in power After 9-11 Hey Ken I'm going to throw a curveball At you real quick Question
0: let me ask you something real quick, and, and this is, I think, very important. And I think all the audience wants to hear this one. Donald Trump has said, and this is, I'm not, I'm not just, this is proven. He did not believe in the Iraq War. He did not believe in the Afghan War. He did not believe who Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. I'm just wondering what what is your take on that? What, you know, you know his thoughts. You know the way he kind of narrates, you know his own opinion. I mean, he's stated it many times that he wasn't for it. Uh, I, you know,
2: I, I I mean everybody has their own obviously opinion and, and you know right. different views okay. and, and things I, they gonna study gonna and stuff like that. Blow your mind here! I think if Donald Trump had been president uh, after nine yes. eleven, he would have made a deal yes. with Saddam Hussein not going to war with Saddam Hussein. He would have made a deal with Saddam Hussein. And Saddam would have loved to make that deal. And the, the deal would have been pretty simple. Uh, let's get rid of all of your weapons of mass destruction. Let's turn over yeah. all those guys that we believe that you're harboring who have terrorists, who are involved yeah. in terrorist organizations and who have ties to al-Qaeda. And, uh, and then we're going to become best buddies. And Saddam would have said, okay, I'm ready to do that. So you're, deal so you're talking like very similar to, to, to like what, what he's doing with North do. Korea. Exactly, what he's doing with North Korea. Look at North Korea, yeah. and, and Donald Trump yes. would have proposed the same deal to Saddam. And I, I am sitting here wagering you, having known Saddam, having known his, his administration pretty darn well, I met – I was the yes. only Western journalist who ever interviewed the heads of his chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons programs. Before wow. the 1991 war, I was the only guy who ever met them. Who ever met them, all right? And so I knew his. I knew his regime pretty well. They were brutal. They were horrible. They were, you know, completely cynical. But Saddam would have taken the deal because Saddam wanted to stay in power. Yeah. You give me a deal where I stay in power. Okay, I don't need this stuff. You're going to protect me now, right? That's what he wanted. Yeah, and and you know you see you see
0: President Trump foreign policy expertise. I mean, the way he deals with these foreign leaders is unbelievable. It's so profound and he'll make a deal with them. And, you know, I mean, he, everybody knows he's one of the best negotiators in the world. I mean, that's, that's a known business fact. He's been known, known, uh, you know, by that for a long time. Um, and, and we see all these leaders bowing down to him and Trump not caving in or or giving in at all, and these leaders knowing that they need us more than we need them, and they have no choice but to make a deal with Trump. So, I mean, Trump is pretty much on offense all the time. I mean, it, 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 especially with economics. I mean, it's it's pretty much common
2: but, sense Roy, at this Roy, point. I mean, the... yeah, right, right. You're right, you're right. But hear me on this. This is very important, and I hope our listeners take yeah. take note of this. Uh, yeah. Donald Trump is doing what no other president has done before yep. uh, he 's going yep. directly to those leaders uh, who are yep. posing threats to the United States and negotiating <laughs> like with a and trying field. to find common ground and negotiate exactly no, and he 's doing it against the advice of all those geniuses in our foreign policy establishment and our intelligence establishment who are telling us, "Oh my gosh, you can 't talk to Kim." in North Korea, you've got to let us prepare this, Mr. President, for 67 years before you can have talks with him. Uh, And they certainly don't want him to talk to Putin. Oh, my gosh, that was a disaster. Oh, please don't talk (laughs) to President Xi in China, because we don't know if you're going to give away the store. And if you go to Saddam Hussein, if he had been in power at that time, they would have said exactly the same thing. They would have said exactly the same thing. And I I, I, I wager you this, uh, the deep state... Um, uh, war against Donald Trump has only begun. We've not seen the end of it. We've just seen the beginning. You think that Mueller is the end of the deep state war? No, no, no. He's just the beginning of the deep state war against Donald Trump. If Donald Trump uh, negotiates a deal with communist China, which it looks like he's going to do, if Donald Trump uh, carries out this new trade deal with Mexico and Canada, which it looks like he's going to do, if uh, Donald Trump... Uh, negotiates a successful end to the North Korean nuclear weapons program, watch out because the deep state is going to whipsaw him as badly as they can. They're going to try to defeat him, uh, if not worse. Yeah, well, it was just announced today on Breibar
0: that he is winning the trade war with China. China is caving. They're caving in. And, And here's another thing which is fascinating about this entire thing. You brought up a really good point, in the sense that, you know, with Trump, you know what, what what he's doing is is he is you know in a situation where he's not owned by anyone. I feel like a lot of times these past politicians, and it's on both sides, of course, and that have only done stuff with these various countries for, you know, perks, for benefits. And if these countries turned them down, they would talk
2: badly about these countries. Is that somewhat of a fair assumption? Well, I think, I think so. I mean, I'm still waiting to see what the Iranians uh, offered to John Kerry. I call him Jean-Francois Kerry oh, yeah. and, uh, and Barack Hussein Obama II. Iran- Osama. Because, yeah, they must have offered them something very, very big because the giveaway of U.S. security and of our national interest was so extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime, and I've been around for a little while.
0: Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it blows, it blows my mind. Um, I, I do I, – we will introduce our next guest here shortly, Um very exciting guest. But, Ken, I do want you to stay on the line for a second. I don't uh, – do we have uh, – we have a New York area code. It, it, Mike Peters?
5: Yes, that's me. How are you?
0: How are you, man? He have been uh, uh, to the show uh, before. You're a military guy. Uh, Thank you for your service. You probably have some
7: questions.
5: Uh, well, no, no, no. I work for them. I'm one of those evil government contractors, but um, I'm one of the good evil contractors. I'm not one of the KBR types. We're mom and pop, so we take we take good care of our troops. Uh, but I mean, I agree. But as um, you know, my my main focus is World War Two. That's a little bit more than a history buff. But I mean, I agree with everything everything your 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 guests were saying, and <clears throat> outstanding to hear it. I mean, there are a lot of things that I brought up before, even to, to some of our guys and officers when they were first deployed, when they first went over there. And I said, you know, why doesn't the army learn from history? I mean, instead of just releasing all of these soldiers, not paying them and leaving them armed, And and the same with the police and everything else and leaving complete chaos in the streets. And then standing back and saying, well, they're looting museums. It's not our responsibility. So we're military. I said, you know, at the end of world war two, what we did was we had every town turnout, identified people and gave them IDs. And there were military style IDs that were given to everybody in the country was identified. You had to bring paperwork with you to prove, I don't care whether it was a water bill or something to prove that you lived, what address you lived at, who you were, where you were from. And then what would happen is five months later, if they caught you driving in Munich at three in the morning and you showed your ID they said, wait a minute, your ID says you're from Bavaria. What are you doing? Or or you're from Hamburg. What are you doing over here at this hour in the morning? It would have been easier for identifying some of these insurgents and really locking the place down, but they don't learn from history. They forget the mistakes. They should have never just cut the military loose. They should have kept them on. Same thing we did in, in Germany at the end of World War II. I've got German police ID books that were not, still had the Nazi insignia all over them, and that were used in, towards the end of 1946, that they kept them in place and kept the order in place and kept the machine running. There was denazification, absolutely, and they could have handled it like that instead of the way they did. We, didn't, we don't learn from history. We have to keep learning and and doing it again and making the same mistakes. And it's frustrating, you know, for a historian to look back at it going, you know, what are they doing? Why? But a lot could have been avoided. And another thing that I'm dead against, the hair stands up on my neck when I hear everybody say weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction. I've got soldiers that I know, people that we fed because we're in food service. And guys right now that are suffering because of it, yes, they found a chemical factory and they found bunkers full of the stuff up by Balad, where New York was deployed. And the New York times admitted it and they wrote articles about it. And the guys told me, they, they said, we opened up the bunkers and the stuff was leaking and army security came. They said, they took all of our phones. They erased pictures. They didn't want any pictures or anything because the, the, the shells and everything they found in those bunkers were coming from Italy, France, Germany. They couldn't expose that. Because it would have embarrassed our partners. So Bush had to keep his mouth shut because it would have embarrassed our partners. In the meantime, now we've got guys dying from being exposed to this crap. But the public doesn't know about it, and they keep saying, he didn't have anything. There was nothing. Yeah, there was stuff So minutes. it's frustrating. It's frustrating to, to hear. So, no, here. very very interesting. Uh, great guest that you have on, and... and and very interesting to hear his side of it. it, it really good. And, um, Ken, you, want to, and,
0: and Ken, you I, want to
2: respond to that? And then I'm going to go to John yeah, and Dan, uh, and then I'll well, introduce our next guest. Yeah, uh, okay, quickly, thank you so much for that comment. And that is so true. I heard that from people on the ground who had, were, had seen those bunkers. And I had heard that for years and years before that uh, from U.S. military people who were victims of, of what they called Persian Gulf War illness. Uh, it was you know, coming from Iraqi chemical weapons uh, bunkers that had been exploded, exploded. It was it was well known by everybody. You are right. Uh, even Karl Rove in 2004, after the 2004 election, uh, admitted we knew that Saddam had WMD when we went in there and we confirmed it afterwards. But we had lost the war in the media, and we decided just to keep our mouths short, shut. We could not win back. Public opinion, after the media had so definitively turned against us and turned against the truth, and that's one of the problems we got in this country. Uh, once the media decides on a quote narrative, it's very difficult to turn that around.
5: Absolutely.
4: Yep. Well, I agree. Uh,
1: Josh, go ahead.
4: Yeah, boy, that you know, it's very interesting. The level of things that, you know, recently we find out about things that have been, that have been covered up. You know, everything, everything's very much, it seems like things in the deep state are coming up. And the longer that we continue to go down this trail of not trusting things as we did before, it seems that we find different situations like the one that just is just mentioned that no one's ever heard of, but unlocks huge pieces of the puzzle and the picture starts to come through and actually makes sense. And you know it begins to make us think of what other pieces we're missing.
5: Well, one thing but one thing problem. I'd like to ask your guest about is Camp Ashraf. Did you ever go in and interview or any, anybody that was in charge or operated within Camp Ashraf? Because we never hear anything on the media, and and the average public doesn't. They don't even know that that camp existed. And yet, two months ago, I met a colonel who was in charge of an MP unit that was assigned for protecting that and keeping an eye on it. And he admitted to me. We didn't know what to do with these people. Have you ever dealt with Camp Ashraf? Uh, I know
2: some of the people who were there, they were the Mujahideen Hawk, which was a Marxist-Islamist group, but against the Iranian regime in Tehran. And uh, they, had been supported by, they had been supported by Saddam Hussein. They were hated yep. by the Kurds in Iraq. Uh, they had tried to, yep. uh, by the way, to assassinate the, 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 the Taliban, the head of the Kurdish Regional government, what is now the Kurdish regional government. It's a very complicated situation, but the MEK were not our friends. Uh, We protected them. We, the United States, protected them for, uh, gosh, almost two decades. And uh, now the MEK is trying to convince yet another group of freshmen in Congress that they are the only solution for Iran. They want to impose a new Islamist state. In Iran yes. Is bad if not worse than the one that's already there That's the, unfortunately the problem That's the reality that's you know, unfortunately
5: the problem. You, you know what the, the colonel explained to me Is that a lot of these people were prior military Were military officers in Iran And when the Ayatollah Turned on them they ended up turning sides And they were protected and went over to Iraq And, and Saddam right. set them up With their own base and armed them And, and kept that's them right. going And they that's were right. a, complete, a complete Iranian army Unit based in Iraq and now the Americans don't even know that existed. Saddam was hoping someday right. that he could overthrow the Iranians and send them in. Right. And and, and, did, an and Rory, have you ever heard of him?
2: He fought he an eight-year war. Uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. 1980s, a lot of people 1980s. never even knew that existed. And a lot of people yeah. did not know that that existed. You're absolutely correct about that. That's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those things where – and Dan, Dan, your thoughts on this.
3: Well, I I really think it's it's insightful that both gentlemen have presented evidence that, in fact, there were weapons of mass destruction. But it is a perfect example of a combination of the deep state and of the the media that is controlling the agenda and are looking the other way uh, at the cost of thousands and thousands of lives. It's it, it just very disheartening to me that how our our news media which the founders thought was the fourth estate is no estate at all
2: Don't worry if I could just say one thing before leaving because uh, uh, I, I know you've got other, another guest uh, coming on here uh, you know i've spent 35 years of my life looking into the deep sea Okay, That's really what I've been doing. I've been, I spent 18 years in France in the Middle East, then came back here in the United States. I've written 11 books of nonfiction. I really commend, for people who are interested, take a look at my books. They're at KenTimmerman.com. There's a page on the books. I've written a book about the, uh, about the Iran situation. It's called Countdown to Crisis. This was in 2005, the coming nuclear showdown with Iran. And it, yeah, it lays out all the stuff about Iran. I've written two books about Iraq. Uh, the first one came out. In 1989, uh, it was about uh, the the arming of Iraq and the arming of Iran, and then another one, the death in 1992, about how the West armed Saddam Hussein. I looked into that from the get-go, the Germans, the French, the Brazilians, and the United States, the truth, and then the lies about it. The United States did not arm Saddam Hussein. We made mistakes in the beginning of the Reagan uh, administration, but corrected them as of 1994. Anyhow. Take a look at my website, KenTimmerman.com. There are many books there. Some of them are free. You can download pieces of them uh, for free uh, online. And and you'll see even into, you know, preachers of hate at the war of of Islam against the United States right after um, the 9-11 battle uh, and my interviews with Muslim uh, preachers who are not radicals, who are not out of the mainstream, who supported al-Qaeda, and who uh, wanted to destroy America? This was the ideology that was against us in that war. Uh, they attacked us. Anyway, all that's there. at dot I really invite you to have a look.
0: Absolutely, and Ken, I, I, you know, before you go, you know, it's been a real honor. You know, I want to thank you. And uh, you know, it's fascinating that President Trump is, you know, going to be meeting with Kim Jong Un. Uh, this in, a, in like I think shortly. I mean, in the next couple months. I mean, there he's already preparing for his next meeting, and you you look at all of this, and it's it just opens up so many doors. I mean, look what Obama said when he left office: Kim Jong Un in North Korea was the biggest threat. You see Kim Jong Un and Trump smiling and laughing, and getting along, and I mean, it's just like what. It's like, what, Obama? What are you talking about?
2: Right. Iran is the biggest threat, and Obama should have known it, uh, but he sold out to the Iranians. We don't yet know what the price was personally for him, what the benefit personally for him was, but he sold out to the yeah. Iranians and sold out in a big way.
1: What do you know
0: about the cash that Obama delivered uh, to Iran uh, in the plane, $1.5 billion in cash, uh, gave him a ton of money? Did you ever research that at all?
2: Well, yeah, it was, and it was done uh, in a really conniving fashion. We withdrew the money from the treasury in increments, uh, dollars below the hundred million dollar threshold, which required reporting to Congress. So he made, you know, uh, something like seventeen withdrawals from treasury of ninety nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand whatever dollars uh, to get the cash to put on that plane. I think it was one point seven billion dollars, uh, but he did it. You know, in a in a way that was, you know, if it was not illegal, literally, uh, but it was three dollars short of being illegal.
0: Right, right.
1: Well, and you if know, we do that, and we and get arrested.
0: Yeah, If we you know, now, make a deposit
1: at the like bank. That. If we make it yeah. an deposit, a, yeah. you know,
0: the, th- <laughs> the things they get away, the things they get away with, I tell you, it's it's fascinating. Huh. Uh, you know, Ken, I could talk to you all day. Uh, I'm going to get you back on the show next week, and uh, you know, let's let's all pray that uh, my good buddy Sheriff Joe Arpaio is the next head of Homeland Security, because uh, you know there's some rumors going around. So uh, let's uh, let's pray, you know, that he's the that this happens because uh, nobody else knows the or uh, immigration better than the God the Godfather Arpaio.
2: Ken, are you there? I, I am. Look forward to being back on the show. And Joel Pio has certainly done God's work on the border. That's for sure.
0: I, I would, and yeah, I'd love that. And uh, I'd love. I'm going to have you back on next week, Ken. And thank you for coming on. God bless you. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. But before you go, does anybody have any final questions for Ken? And I want Ken to say where everybody can find him.
4: I
5: mean, I could go a about
4: questions,
1: but you know we go yeah.
4: on for days, so probably
5: just going yeah. to probably yeah. just going to close and nice. Yeah. nice meeting you. I just, a, I, I, think, I think you're on Facebook. I just sent you, if that's the right person, yeah. I just sent you a friend request. Um, and, and I'll
2: respond to
5: it. Yeah. Yep. And uh, nice meeting you, you. And great hearing from you. Glad to hear somebody that was involved in the media, journalist that is. You know, well balanced and founded. It's great. And Ken,
2: please tell everybody where they can find you one more time. So, so kentimmerman.com is my website, and there are links there to the Facebook page or Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, it's Ken Timmerman, at Ken Timmerman on Twitter. Uh, but uh, I look forward to interacting with our listeners in the future. Thank you.
0: All right. I'll talk to you soon, Ken. Thanks.
2: Okay. God bless. God bless. I want to welcome
0: our very next special guest. He's an award winner. He's an international best-selling author, public speaker, American educator, frequent guest on Oprah, The Today Show, and Good Morning America, activist for, activist for female and male rights, and entrepreneur, Dr. Warren Farrell. How are you, sir?
6: I'm uh, very well. How are you?
0: It is really good to have you back. It's an honor. You've written a fantastic book that many of my co-hosts have loved and uh many people I've talked to have read it and they you know learned so much. They learned so much about life. They learned so much about you know their own uh you know spiritual reality. I mean, there's so much in your book that is gets put into perspective. And you know, Dan Perkins uh, you know, very famous guy, my co-host right here right now, uh, you know, he read your book, and he absolutely loved it. And I want to give him the floor first and foremost uh, because uh, he was really
6: excited uh, to talk to you about this. Dan, go ahead.
4: Doctor, how
3: are you?
6: I am very well. I'm really excited that you had a good experience with um, reading The Boy Crisis. Um, tell me a little bit more about what was what was helpful for
3: you. I actually didn't read it once. I read it three times. Wow. And every time, every time I, and then I finally got the audio edition and listened to that twice. Um, I, I, uh, you and I have a similar, the same publicist, AJ. And um, I've been working with AJ for four or five years. I have a foundation called. Songs and Stories for Soldiers. I've interviewed you a couple of times, once on this show and once on James Lowe show um, in the last few months. Um, but I have a foundation called Songs and Stories for Soldiers that's in 120 facilities across the United States. It's MP3-based, and we've given away almost 18,000 players in four years. Wow. We work with the veterans associations, the veterans hospitals, clinics, warrior and transition units, um, homeless shelters, um, vet centers uh, across the United States. And we work in the area of post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, sleep deprivation, and suicide prevention. We This year, this past year, we expanded into um, end-of-life hospice care. Um, and the um, The thing that fascinated me is I'm a veteran myself, and um, as I have traveled around the country to these veterans facilities where they treat uh, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of veterans, uh, so many of the things, especially in the last section of your book, if I I could be so arrogant as to suggest from my (laughs) bias, you could have more information, more of the information is in the back of the book about veterans problems towards the front of the book, because they're so insightful. Your discussion about, uh, about uh, uh, testosterone and the, and the impact of that and the, the, the mind alterations as a result of combat being similar to the highs of narcotics and, and how there is a, a thirst. I, I, I've told people the best way to get a good understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder, if you don't know anything about it or have never seen it, go see American Sniper because it shows you uh, how the American male, uh, young men uh, have been so devastated by war and combat. Um I'm curious. With all of that diatribe I just went through, the question I: How did you come to write this book?
6: Well, when I had been. Promoting my other books around the um, <clears throat> around the world, and I was in Japan one, about 12, 13 years ago, actually about 15 years ago, I think it was. Um, a teacher came up to me, a Japanese teacher, and said, "You know, um, in Japan, the boys are having a lot more problems than the girls." And then I went to Australia england and other countries and kept hearing the same thing and and uh, and the original comments that i heard about this were really more like 20 years ago and this was on my radar but in after the japanese teacher was really pretty elaborate about it i started searching out to see how much boys were falling behind girls if they in fact were and i saw that the united nations had done a study um, finding that in all 63 of the largest developed nations um, boys were falling behind girls in every single academic subject, with the exception of a few nations, and um, and and they were falling significantly behind girls in every nation. All 63 of the largest developed in uh, reading and writing, and those are the two biggest predictors of success in terms of academic subjects and so i started um you know looking further and seeing that um boys were full, were way ahead of girls when it came to suicides homicides imprisonment unemployment um, depression uh, de- depression when depression is measured in a more objective way than just the female measures of depression um and They were uh, much more likely to drop out of school, much more likely to be unemployed in their 20s and 30s, much more likely to be moving back home when they were in their 30s um, with their parents um, for long periods of time. All of these things were, you know, used to be that girls were the ones that would move back home after college. Now it was boys at 66% more likely than girls. And so I started asking a second set of questions, which is, you know, why are boys having so many problems? And um, I I analyzed 10 different causes, um, but the cause that kept coming back as the primary cause was uh, dad deprivation. Uh, Boys who were deprived of their dad, either had minimal time or no no time with their dad as they were growing up, were by far and away the most likely to end up in prison, the most likely to drop out of school, the most likely to do, and this was quite surprising to me, almost all of the mass shooters were, as I researched their backgrounds, were dad-deprived boys then i then i checked out isis which you were talking about in the program you know in the last hour and that was also isis is, the isis recruits from the united states are almost all dad deprived boys and the smaller percentage of girls that are isis recruits are also dad deprived girls and so i started looking more carefully at the issue of dad deprivation and then looked at um where that was coming from and it was coming from two basic areas one was boys and uh, boys and girls of divorce in which about 9 out of 10 times the um, child is likely to be much more uh, living primarily with the mother. And sees very frequently very little of the father or none of the father at all and often has the father um, bad mouths the father. Um, in front of the the mother badmouths the father. And then the children are, uh, the boy looks in the mirror and sees that he's half of the father's genes and begins to get very depressed about himself as a possible liar, irresponsible narcissist, or whatever the mother is saying about him. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, the other big um, group of dad-deprived boys was in, and this, this next statistic really shocked me, uh, was finding that 53% of women under 30 who have children have children without being married, and most of those children do not know their father at all well or at all, some not even knowing who their father is. And then of the smaller group, that live uh, where the mother and father live together when they're married um, when the woman is under thirty and has a child, um, that the child only knows or is with the father in any significant way um, about um, uh, for three and a half to four years at the most and so that and that is those two groups the dad dep- deprived uh, of dad deprived boys the divorced children and the children of um, of uh, mothers who have um, Children without being married under the age of thirty; um, those were the two groups where the boy crisis resides. So I basically concluded um, that the boy crisis resides where fathers do not reside.
7: Yeah,
3: I, I have a an illustration from your book, and then a question, and then I'll, I'll I'll allow other people on the show to ask you questions. But let me deal with the illustration. Sure. If I, if I read it read it correctly, Doctor, you 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 say in the book that where there is a divorce in play and the mother retains custody of the children especially boys the the incidence of attention deficit disorder is about 30% in those those male children who reside with the mother Yet, if those those children or boys reside with the father as part of the divorce, the incidence of ADHD and other mental illnesses, my word, crashes to a number that's unbelievable. Did I get that
6: 15, correct? 15% with dads, 30% with moms and because you know moms are listening here too um you know the natural question would be you know, what is creating this and what can I do to prevent this? Every single mother, uh, you know, every, almost every single mother that raises a child loves her son and wants the son to not have ADHD if, if it's preventable. Um, you know, ADHD is par- partially has a genetic component to it, a genetic propensity, that, but the genetic propensity gets triggered by the way um, the child is parented. And here's the main di- one of the main differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting.
3: And the good news,
6: and what I'm going to say, is moms can do this. They just don't tend to be naturally inclined to do this. So, and, the, and, the, and so I'll give an example. Um, dads and moms, and I, I mentioned this in the Boy Crisis book, uh, dads and moms um, are both likely to um, set boundaries in exactly the same way. They say, you know, uh, sweetie, um, you, know, you can have ice cream as soon as you finish your peas. And, um, and kids test boundaries the same way. They both, they both challenge the parents and say, you know, oh, can I have, you know, I had a few more peas, now can I have my ice cream? Thank And uh, the difference is in the way the boundaries are enforced. And moms will tend to enforce will try to say, well, well, sweetie, I said you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. So I'll tell you what, have these, you know, this little group of peas, and she takes a fork and separates out a certain number of peas. And then the child tries to negotiate um, having a few less peas than that. And mom is proud when she makes the child um, have most of the rest of those peas. And so what the child is learning from mom is that when mom sets a boundary, I can, if I focus really, um, focus on manipulating a better deal, um, I can probably get a better deal. And starts learning all the things that, that the child can do to coerce the mom um, to, to to say to herself, "Okay, I I, I I got him to eat some peas. It's a tough been a tough day for Jimmy. It's been a tough day for me. I'm not going to spend a few all my precious moments with him um, arguing about a few peas." Dad's approach tends to be different. He'll tend to say, Excuse me, we have a deal here. The deal is you can have your ice cream when you finish your teas. And so the child said, you know, starts whining and saying that dad's mean. And dad will tend to up the ante and say, Well, you, know, you can continue to have, uh, you can continue to whine like this and then there'll be no ice cream tomorrow night either. And so the child with the dad is more likely to see that the more it negotiates and tries to wiggle its way out of this the the boundary that dad set, the worse things are going to get. Okay, I better just focus on doing what I need to do. Um get the piece finished. In order to to get my ice cream to get what I want to have so what the child is learning with the dad with the enforced boundaries is the crucial thing for success and that's postponed gratification what the child's learning with moms is to not focus its attention on doing what needs to be done but focusing its attention on how to best manipulate and therefore distracting itself from the attention focus and the attention deficit, uh, and and gets therefore attention deficit. A, a text comes in, a new idea about how to manipulate mom comes in, and instead of focusing on the attention. Focused on finishing the peas, the attention gets focused on all those other things, and so um, and 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 so when the, the slippery slope here is that when the child goes to school, and um, and does not have postponed gratification, um, a text comes in, let's say from a friend, and se- and the and the kid goes from the homework to the to the paying attention to the text, and then loses where it's at at the homework, and then begins to get grades that are worse, or doesn't have the capacity to continue rehearsing the basketball um, uh, practices and strategies that will help him be a winner at basketball or whatever sport he's good at. And um, so he's not good at sports. He's not good at, at, at homework. He's, um, and, and then the teachers don't give him as much positive feedback. Um, the school, um, his the classmates don't respond to him as, as positively. Um, his mother and father aren't as proud of him. And when it comes to boy-girl time, girls don't date losers. Um, they want to date the winners and so they don't ask him out he gets depressed, withdraws into video games, identifies with virtual heroes rather than making himself the hero, um, and he doesn't. Um, and and when it, and w- because girls aren't responding to him, he withdraws into porn, becomes addicted to porn. Uh, when he becomes addicted to porn, he can't relate to real life girl situations very well. That creates a greater amount of depression, um, and and worst case scenarios, suicide, um, or drug overdosing or. Dr- you know, drug addiction, and um, and in super worst case scenarios, such anger at the people at school that he does a school shooting or a mass shooting to to get a little bit of attention and a little bit of um, desire that people on the part of people that he knows. I wish I had paid more attention to Gary um, before he did that, you know, and then maybe he wouldn't have shot my friends and my schoolmates and so on.
3: The doctor, uh, thank you for all of that. Um, my My final question is, and, and it's it's a I, I'll tell you up front, it's a loaded question. when when a person reads your book, you really have to ask the question of why you wrote this in the face of all of the potential pressure from women's groups across the nation who would criticize and chastise you as being anti women
6: yes i, I um, and certainly i have when people hear that um, you know that uh, that the children do do so much better especially boys uh, when they have father involvement that um, sometimes um, I do get that criticism, um, but uh, what i uh, what, and and this is especially true since i was I used to be on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, and I was the world leading leading male feminist, and when I began to find that children did so much better with, um, with when they had significant father involvement. Instead of saying, "Gee, we are so glad, Dr. Farrell, that you did this research that finds out what's best for children," because all us women who are feminists, we care a great deal about what happens to children. That was not the response I got. The response I got was, um, "Wait a minute. We want the children to have. The, uh, we want women to have the right to be able to raise children uh, without fathers if they choose to. We don't want women's freedom curtailed yeah. by your analysis that children um, do, to, uh, boys especially, tend to do uh, significantly better." when there's a, a significant amount of father involvement. Conversely, the conserva- conservatives have been, you know, say to me, my God, uh, Dr. Farrell, we've been saying this for a, a half a century, and uh, we're so glad that you have, a, you know, a thousand footnotes to document how important the intact family is and uh, also that, uh, how important that um, fathers are and that you have all these ways like family dinner nights, not becoming family dinner nightmares, and all these ways of communicating with your children that can bring the whole family together. Uh, we've been talking about the value of the intact family for, for years, and it's amazing that some liberal has actually uh, come around and found out that we were right and they were wrong. And so, I so I, it did cost me many many millions of dollars because I was making a, a great deal of money speaking around the world on uh, on women's yeah. issues, and this was not considered to be the right uh, politically correct attitude to have on women's issues. In my personal opinion, um, it is um, you know the women that I know that. That really care about children have been responding gr- very positively to me, um, you know, and women around the world um, that have been reading the Boy Crisis book have been responding very positively to me. You know, things like saying, "You know, I never realized when my husband is is roughhousing with the children uh, that this roughhousing right. um, actually <clears throat> promotes uh, empathy and promotes um, um, assertiveness, not aggressiveness, and so many other things that I do want my child to have." So. I'm going to now um, have a deeper understanding of how to encourage rather than discourage the roughhousing.
7: I
3: have one last uh, last comment, Roy. One last comment. My daughter-in-law is a psychologist working for the government, a state government in the Mid-Atlantic region. I have a seven-year-old son, and she's married to my son, and they're both at their wits' end about how to deal with his obsession with video games and his lack of involvement in, in sports and other activities. I told him about the book. They asked me if they could have a copy of the book for Christmas. So I gave them a copy of your book for Christmas because my, my grandson has got a problem and they're desperately looking for a way to try and deal with it. So thank you for hopefully saving my grandson.
6: Thank you. Would you, Dan, um, be good enough to email me and, first of all, give them my email address, which is Warren at WarrenFarrell dot com, and I answer all my emails, and especially if they mention um, their relationship to you, um, I will um, be very interested in hearing. Uh, what what worked especially for them, and anything that didn't work, I'll be happy to work with them on making sure that um, you know we we do the best we can to make it um, um, effective and um, and deepen their loving relationship and the child's the child's efficacy. Thank, Thank you so much. Let's
0: roll, let, yeah, let, let's take a quick thirty second break. and do a quick commercial, but then we're gonna come to Josh. Uh, give sure. Me one second. Hello everybody, this is Rory Sauter from the Rory Sauter Show. Do you ever have an app idea you want built, but you don't know who to contact? Or you don't have the funds to pay a big app company? I got great news for you. My company, GetYourAppBuilt.com, charges a fraction of the cost compared to anywhere else. We do all our work here in the USA, and we have employees all across the nation. Give us a call today for your free consultation. We are looking forward to hearing from you. God bless, Cheers. all righty let's go to let's go to Josh.
4: Yeah, so one of the things that you know first off, to touch on you know the idea that uh, of someone being so extremely interested in things like video games at, at a young age, for instance i'm a I'm a coach of a uh, middle school basketball team. And uh, I actually had a kid today that during, we you know, we just get back from Christmas break. We're having some conditioning things because we got to get him back in the back in the flow from being off of school for a couple of weeks and off of practice. And he, you know, he started he in, in the middle of our, our workouts, he started to give up and started to cry. And we, you know, we let him go off in the bathroom for a couple minutes. And I went in after I asked him, I'm like, you know, what's going on? Is it is it something? Is it something? Is it something physical? Like are you in pain? You know something hurt, or is it something? You know mental? Like there's something going on at home. And he told me he goes, it's hard, and that's why I don't want to do it. And I'm like, well, first off, you know you have. You, first off, let's talk about this. You got options. You can you can quit, which is not. I mean, like if your parents let you quit, you can quit, right? I found out later his his, his mother is. You know his dad isn't in his life. I find find out. And that, you know, his, his mother is making him do this because um, he wanted to do it originally and she's making him stick through it to the end of the season, which I think is a great idea. But, you know, I'm talking to him and is, is it, he, what he's saying is it's hard. And I'm like, well, well first off, I asked him, I said, what's, what's the benefit of quitting? And he says, nothing. And I said, well, hold on. That's not necessarily true. You could go home. I mean, you could have a short-term benefit of you get to go home earlier. You don't have to stay an hour and a half. To practice after school You could go get your homework done fast You could go play video games You could do whatever you want You'd have an hour and a half more time And plus you wouldn't have to come to games Whatever I'm saying there's not there's, there's a benefit of Right now up front to quitting But then I said In the long term there's not Because one First off there's also a benefit To you sticking to this In the short term as well At the end of the season You're going to feel better about yourself Two You're going to be in better shape Than you are right now and three, you might find out that you actually like to play this. And I said, and the the best thing you can do for me is, I don't know about tomorrow, but I need you to get out and at least give me what you got today. Because if you go home and decide with your parents that you you know this is something that you want to back out of, it's something that you can't. But I think one of the things, you know, and he ended up getting back and his, his spirit began to raise as he began to get back into it with his teammates. But the thing that I think really – worked worked with him specifically was the idea of you know in the long term this is going to be beneficial for you whether or not you think it right now and I was able to convince him of that I think that it's hard to convince kids of that normally luckily he was he's a little bit more on the up and up what's something that we can do to combat when when I feel like any more the a a kid's way of coming at something especially at the middle school and younger is and even in high school and in college as well as if it's hard i don't want to do it if it's hard i want to quit how can we get that mentality out because it seems like it's something that's a lot i mean it's always something that we deal with throughout our whole lives but it seems to be running rampant through our high school and younger especially you know in grade school kids
6: you're absolutely right uh, when you know years ago or gen- generation or two ago, when you were born, and especially if you were born a boy, you know the basic message that the boy got is if when you if you become a man um you were you know you exist, therefore you serve uh today it 's yeah. more you exist therefore you deserve and that's a very different message. The the, the latter makes somebody lazy. Um, children or parents are often extremely empathetic to the child, which seems very good on the surface, but a child that only receives empathy learns to think about its own feelings and its own fears and not to think about anyone else's fears as, besides itself. So oftentimes teachers will be um, surprised on um, parent-teacher night um, that, the, that the, they have a boy in the class who's really um, very... Very uh, successful, and the parents will um, will be you know sort of fairly strict, and they they'll have a child that's really very um, um, uh, very spoiled and uh, self-centered, and then they'll meet the parents, and the parents will be just loving and caring and always thinking and empathetic. Um, but you know, and so so the first response here is first to give the mother credit here because the mother is doing something good, which is um, encourage. The boy Dr. to, Dr. to Dr. Bell, just,
0: just to warn you, we yes. have a few minutes left, and I, I do have a few more things to ask you, so uh, if, you, oh, if sure. you can make this point quick, if you can.
6: Good. Number one, get the father involved again. Number two, um, make sure that you're constantly enforcing boundaries. Um, so And... Um, Number three, ask the child who his heroes are. The chances are his heroes are people that, are, that have tried very hard and are disciplined. Uh, those are three things that you and get the child involved. If the father is not involved in Boy Scouts, in faith-based communities, um, in uh, Cub Scouts where there is um, uh, both camaraderie, discipline, get the child involved in team sports and, and, um, and individual sports as well, and also pick up team sports.
0: Yeah, and I wanna, I wanna, I wanna mention. You know, we have a few minutes left, and and, and this is very important. You know, that there was a new report out today. Abortion is the leading cause of death in 2018, with 41 million killed. And you know, this is just an example of when people want to talk about how men are the enemy, how you know, men are the bad. You know, but. You look at all these people, these women that are killing babies just because they can. I'm not saying everybody gets in a bull. I mean, I, I'm pro-life. I've always been pro-life. But you know the what? The, the, for certain people, I guess, you know, people have their own guidelines. But at the same time, there's so entitlement that has came into this scenario. And we're also seeing new headlines like they're transgender activists. Are pushing hard for a James Bond transsexual movie. They want they want James Bond to be a tranny. I'm not even kidding. Like this is this was out on Fox yesterday in Breitbart, and this is literally the whole PC culture, right? I'm sure you study this, and it it, it all it, it all you know applies to the, the culture of feminism. The, the where they want to be, uh, alpha, you want they want to be the alpha, the female, they want to be they're anti male, uh, you know, very over, over the top controlling, especially with today's feminism society. Not not necessarily what it was originated for back in the day, but today it's so much entitlement. Uh, but your thoughts on all this, I mean, it all kind of ties together.
6: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The and the, the, the um, What's happening for boys is that so many boys are hearing, even in high school, that first of all I hear an amazing number of boys tell me that their teachers have made negative comments about boys, like boys just have male privilege, Um, shut up now, it's a girl's turn to talk, you talk more than the girl did, Um, and um, boys just have power, it's boys turn to, um, you know, girls rule, Um, girls, you know, have – It's, you know, the future is female. Uh, these are um, boys being ashamed to be males, told, you know, when, you, when males are mentioned. It's um, either as sexual predators or as, um, as as domestic violence perpetrators. And so there's so many images of boys. Some of these experiences are partially accurate. But, you know, there aren't teachers saying, uh, you know, this, look at this classroom um, in the school. It was built by almost all men. Do you know that men are the construction workers and they are the ones that are most likely to die. Why are men the most likely to die in construction sites? Why are they most? Li- why are construction workers among the m- ones most likely to commit suicide? Why is it that our firefighters and our um, and uh, yeah. and and all the male hazardous jobs yeah. they're all men right. that die so much. Yeah. Let's thank men for the sacrifices right. they make. There's none of that Absolutely. in the school system, I'm afraid. And Dr. pearl
0: we do have to let you go. Um, I do want to say, though, uh, I want to have you back on probably next week or the week after. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, um, and we only have a, a few minutes left. But I do, I do want to let you go because I have to do some uh, promoting at the end of the show. Uh, but I do want to say it's been a real honor having you on. Uh, you're, you're a true uh you know patriot and and i love i love the book i love everything you're doing i love the activism uh it's 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 inspirational for for sure uh so thank you for that and please tell everybody where they can find you.
6: Yes, if uh, if money is at all an issue, Amazon is having a sale on the Boy Crisis right now, so they can certainly just Google the Boy Crisis or Warren Farrell. But you don't even have to deal do Warren Farrell; just do the Boy Crisis, and Amazon is the least expensive place to get it. If you have a little bit okay. more um, financial flush, um, go to a book, uh, go to an independent bookstore, and encourage them to um, order it, and just wait for that to come in through the, the through the independent bookstore.
0: Sounds good. Dr. Warren Farrell, it is always a pleasure having you on. Uh we're gonna have you back on again either next week or the week after. We got a lot mo- a lot more to get to. So I look forward to it, sir.
6: Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Dr. Warren Farrell, everybody. Uh what an honor. What an honor having him on. Uh, you know, before we take off, I do want to mention a few things I, I did not mention. Um, A few big headlines, obviously, that I'm going through right now. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney, uh, you know, is being bitter right now, and I'm sure there'll be more to this story eventually. But, uh, you know, just a backstabber, just a greedy, uh, bitter, uh, just a jealous individual of President Trump. And, you know, I, I'm sure everybody saw the op-ed that he wrote over the weekend. Uh, I don't have much time to get into it right now, unfortunately, but I wanted to. But let's just say Mitt Romney is is the, the he's the epitome and the pure definition of about a rhino. Um, but you know, it, 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 you know, he's a lot of people are worried he's the next Jeff Blake, which is a, a legitimate concern. Um, other things I want to mention, which is very important: President Trump cut Obama's refugee inflow. By more than 75% in 2018. That is huge, guys. Think about that again. More than 75% in 2018. President Trump is getting it done. I mean, he is vetting the hell out of these people. He's making sure that we're not getting any – I mean, obviously, there's still going to be you know, mishaps and people getting into this country. But we're doing a hell of a job of guarding our border. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good things. And here, here's what here's what baffles me. You had twenty two thousand illegal miners trying trying to cross in de, in just December alone with the caravan. So the fact that they were using these miners, I mean, it,
5: this this whole
0: oh my god, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, it, it's it's a never ending thing. The Democrats want to keep enabling it and keep you know, uh, encouraging it. it it's, it's sad, you know, that, that, you know, we can't have uh, a true American society uh, that where everybody uh, acts sane. I mean, it's pretty much at this point, it's us on the right, and the conservatives that are, you know, leading the way with the, with the Constitution and proper American values. But uh, I do wanna I do wanna thank everyone for tuning in tonight. I wanna thank all my special guests. I wanna thank my co-hosts. I wanna thank my sponsors. I wanna thank my audience. All the 19 countries who are listening, to, listening, we are listened. Uh, that that we are. Li- God damn, I'm li- I'm lo- losing my voice. That we are listened in in. Uh, so thank you for that. And thank you to everybody that's downloading and listening right now. We have thousands listening right now. Uh, Real quick, though, Dan, people can find you at danperkins.guru, and Josh, tell everybody
4: where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, at J-O-S-H-H-L-A-V-A-T-Y.
0: Excellent, guys, and uh, always visit thedonaldjtrumpstore.com. You can find me on Twitter, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Uh, and uh, you can also visit the nextgenusa.com. Again, that's T H E N E X G E N U S A dot com. Everybody, we have loved being with you tonight and we will see you all soon. God bless you. Cheers.